everybody, welcome to episode 29 of Literary Disco, the Fault in Our Stars episode. Today we will begin with a bookshelf roulette, a segment in which Todd, Julia, and I are forced to grab a book from our bookshelves at random, and then we'll discuss John Green's enormously popular young adult novel, The Fault in Our Stars. I'm actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong, joining me are essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel and novelist and critic Todd Goldberg. Welcome guys. Hi everyone. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. So we're going to do a little uh, roulette action. Julia, do we have numbers from our listeners? We have numbers. Okay. From Emma Harris. Hi, Emma. We have the number two. We're going to start in the top right shelf. Okay. And then from Amy Pawlowski. Ah, the Pawlowskis of Twitter, Amy yes. Paw. Hi, Amy Paw. We have seven. So we're going to go seven shelves down. And then... Back to Emma. She gave us the number 13. So then we're going to go 13 books uh, to the left. Great. 13. You guys got it? All right. Two, seven, 13. Back in a second. Go. Who wants to go first? I would love to go first. So I am actually today recording Literary Disco from the ivory tower in which I work at the University of California Riverside's low residency MFA program in creative writing and writing for the performing arts. As in, I'm in my work office. So I have a bunch of bookshelves here. Books by everyone who's ever taught for me. Um, And then there's also books like uh, The Oxford Companion to English Literature, The Columbia Viking Desk Encyclopedia, Mark Twain, Social Critic. I also have that book on my wall here. Wow. Um, So I have a huge variety of books here. And it just so happens, and they're they're in no order whatsoever. They're not alphabetical. (laughs) They're just shoved in there. Uh, And as luck would have it, today I pulled out Dinah Lenny's uh, memoir, Bigger Than Life, A Murder, A Memoir. And Dinah, um, in an odd series of events, Dinah was one of our professors at Bennington when the three of us were were students there. She was a professor there. And um, I liked her so much as a professor there that when I got hired to run an MFA program, I hired her to (laughs) teach for me out here um, while I was still a student at Bennington. Todd has great power. I have great power. Um, and so I have her memoir, Bigger Than Life, a murder, a memoir here on my shelf of books. And Dinah Lenny is a fantastic uh, essayist and memoirist, and she was also an actress, so still is an actor. Yeah, go and this is, this is a book. <laughs> we're all actors. That's a great point, Ryder. No, actors I need a lot of support. Actors. I didn't say we're all actors. <laughs> I was like, yay, prefer- actors who become writers. I'm supporting I prefer them. the idea that we're all actors. Okay. In this, our play of life. All the world's, All a, the stage. world's a stage. Oh, there it is. oh yeah, I like that. I hope there's a chance <laughs> that later in the show where we can also quote Shakespeare. Um, at any rate, <laughs> Bigger Than Life is her memoir. It's, a, it's an excellent book. It's about her father, who was a politician um, and then later a restaurant owner, an entrepreneur, who was kidnapped and murdered by these men who used to work for him at, at a restaurant in basically a botched robbery. Uh, They then killed him. It is a highly upsetting book, uh, to say the least. Um, It came out in, um, what year did this come out? In 2007 by the University of Nebraska Press. And it's it's an interesting memoir because it's it's also the memoir of a third person. It's a memoir of her father. It's about her father's life. And she does some interesting stuff in the writing of it. She imagines what happened at the moment of his murder, which, of course, she can never know intimately. And she talks, of course, a lot about herself in it. But it's really understanding tragedy and trauma and understanding um, that her father 
was a different person than what she thought he was also. Um, and it's a memory of, of a life. So I can't recommend this book highly enough. Bigger Than Life, A Murder, A Memoir by Dinah Lenny, who I'm also not happy just to call my friend. Yeah, so Dinah's I'm glad I, I got to stumble Dinah this Dinah was one. always the best person to... Um have at a lecture or anything because she would ask the best questions like she asked great oh, questions and, yes. you know, whenever we were at bennington when no matter who was speaking a student or a teacher or anybody she would always be like one of the first people with their hand up after the lecture asking the question that was on all of our minds or whatever it opened up the whole discussion she always started mm-hmm. it off in such a good way such an insightful mind she's I, and also I just, just a nice freaking person yeah, she's a, a cool she's person. a great person great uh, her husband's great her kids are great um whenever i get to see her I, she always makes me feel happy when i see her which is uh, a rare thing usually when you see people most time you see people like oh christ i have to talk to them <laughs> is that how you feel every time you log on to google plus to hang out with us no well i mean some of you Ooh. not both of you Ooh. she's also just a great essayist in general she just sold a new book i should note uh, to counterpoint so I, I just heard that um so she'll have a new book out i think next year at this time and what was she on as an actress? She was on. She was on show? ER for for fifteen years or something like that. And she was on Sons of Anarchy not long ago for uh, several episodes as a as a nun, mm-hmm. uh, as a bad nun. What did uh, What did you find, Julia? I've got a um, well. Okay, I only had six shelves on the bookshelf I was using. So then I went into a bleed over pile of stuff um, that is my seventh shelf. <laughs> um, it is a pile of literary magazines that I subscribe to, but largely haven't read. Um, but this one I have, so I was excited. Um, this is issue number 114 of Granta, which is a classic mm-hmm. literary magazine. It is indeed. I love it. They're, the publishing uh, quality is so great. It comes like a book, and it looks great on the shelf, everybody. Um, so issue 114 is the Aliens issue. And I remember reading it, and I remember uh, very specifically, it came out maybe a year or two ago. Um, the first story is absolutely wonderful. Um, so they theme their issues, and they interpret the theme ha- very broadly. So the first story is called Come Japanese by Julie Atsuka. It's a story written in, uh, like, out of a group mind of a bunch of Japanese mail-order brides while they're on the boat over. So here's, like, the first couple sentences. It's beautiful. On the boat, we were mostly virgins. We had long black hair and flat, wide feet, and we were not very tall. Some of us had eaten nothing but rice gruel as young girls and had slightly bowed legs, and some of us were only 14 years old and were still young girls ourselves. Some of us came from the city and wore stylish city clothes, but many more of us came from the country, and on the boat we wore the same old kimonos we'd been wearing for years. And it goes on like that. And it's the kind of voice that um, can't really be sustained for longer than the length of a story, but it just works so well here, and it's such a wonderful choice because it's about the camaraderie of of these women as they're on the boat and the secrets they tell each other and it's basically like their last communal experience with people that they're going to be familiar and comfortable with before they you know enter america and marry gross old dudes (laughs) so it's it's really good it's a great story um 
the rest of the issue. The rest of the issue. Are there ever any some nice young men who get Japanese mail order brides? That never happens. No, never. Just like just like a hot dude is like, I'm tired of the dating scene. Oh, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna get a Japanese mail order bride. Somebody should do that as a reality show, though. Um, so it's it's really good, and in general, Granta is a great magazine. It's so worth subscribing to. Sometimes when I'm poor and I don't subscribe to anything else, I always get that. So I would recommend it for those of you looking for a new literary magazine. And Granta always puts out this, uh, they put out issues where they say, you know, best young ex-novelist or writer every year. And like the best new British novelist, best new American writers. Um, and then they're also, they do taste-making type stuff, basically. They, they did a whole issue in the 80s about the dirty realists. In American literature, mm-hmm. and that's basically what started the whole dirty realism trend in American short fiction writing, the, the Tobias Wolves and Richard Fords and all those folks. I, I also know, I mean, it's a really popular magazine, so it's not, like, very easy to get published in it, but I do know that they also pride themselves on discovering huge new voices. Mm-hmm. So they're really into pushing forward people who they believe in. So you'll find in their back issues like Zadie Smith when she was nobody and all those kind of people. It's it's really cool. Great and I think, I think they're edited by an American now. I think I think mm-hmm. John Freeman is their editor now. Is that right? Yeah. Yep. Who, that's who right. is an American. He's from the I think he's from the Bay Area. Um, so that's a slight difference now. But yeah they yeah, and he's really young. Mm-hmm. And he's uh, he wrote a book about um, uh, how email is killing us. Um, oh. he's Send a, me a link to that. It was good. <laughs> I will. You get it? Cause, uh, I'll cause email emails. it to you. Yeah, emails. I'll email it to you. You get it? You get See, it, that's writer? funny because... <laughs> oh, I got it. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on to my book. <laughs> I landed on It's a always bad when writer is the voice of judgment. Um... <laughs> Oh, I got it. I landed on a book that it, it's a very well-worn copy. Oh my god, it has it is my old copy. I landed on the Grapes of Wrath. Uh, oh, wow. and it says this book is property of Ryder Strong. I have no idea why I wrote that. Oh well, this is a good book. Read it. I'm bored. Signed, Ryder Strong. Oh my god. And I, I even do, did a little cartoon what face after my signature, item. which I used to do. Why did you I sign your own book? I have no idea. So obviously, I was bored. Re- I mean, this was I was in high school, so I I think I read this my freshman year of high school, so I could only have been 14. Um, but this launched a, an obsession with Steinbeck when I was a kid. I mean, I think part of it was because uh, I was. You know, raised in Northern California, and his books so obviously are indebted to California. Like, I loved East of Eden, I loved Grapes of Wrath, I really loved Cannery Row when I was a teenager. Um, To the point where, if you go to the Steinbeck Museum in Salinas, there is a brick with my name on it, because I helped give money to uh, found that museum. Because originally, in Salinas, if you went to the Steinbeck Museum, I'm putting that in quotes... It was just an office with, like, you know, a bunch of his old books and information about him. And uh, they were raising money to build the actual museum. So I donated enough money to get a brick with my name on it. Um, and it's actually, it's a pretty cool That's museum. Awesome. Yeah. Um, but then I kind of got out of, I, I haven't read Steinbeck since I was a teenager. I, I think he's one of those authors, I've read everything he wrote, and then I haven't gone back. I've reread Cannery Row. When my dad was in the hospital, I I read him. This was years ago. My dad was uh, battling cancer. I read him all of Cannery Row over the course of like two or three days um, because he's also a big Steinbeck fan. 
Uh, but I haven't reread Grapes of Wrath, and I have a feeling it might not hold up as well as I think it does. I don't know. What was no, it does. I think Grapes it of does. Wrath holds really? up. Really? Because I don't think East of Eden holds yeah. up. I've heard bad things about East of Eden, that it's really didactic and heavy-handed and obvious. And that it's one of those books that, like, it's epic in scope, but it's actually very simplistic in the sort of morality and characterization. Yeah. And and I have a feeling that Grapes of Wrath kind of is the same way, isn't it? No. No. I, Do you I re- remember the end of the Grapes of Wrath? We won't spoil it. Because I think it's very dramatic. It's dark. I mean, and it doesn't tie everything together. It's basically just these people are fucked forever. Right. (laughs) It's it's so um, honest and... It's it's really good. Of mice and men, of mice and men is is one of my all time favorite books. I mean, I've been trying to write of mice and men my entire life. Basically, I I absolutely love that book. I mean, we talked about it in our origin story episode uh, for Mm -hmm. me at least. You know, a year and a half ago, whenever it was we recorded it. But you know, the Steinbeck Museum is pretty cool. I went there. I was at a writers conference in Salinas, and we went. And Salinas, for those of you who have not been to Salinas, is a shithole. The Steinbeck Museum in Salinas is really neat. And uh, it, there's lots of interesting stuff there. But, you know, I think it, Steinbeck actually ties in well to what we're going to talk about later in the episode, which is um, a young adult novel, John Green's The Fault in Our Stars, which is that Steinbeck was my young adult fiction. Yeah. You know, Steinbeck is what I read when I was 15, 16, exactly. 17 years exactly. old. Um, I tore through all... So, I mean, is that just a California kid thing? Or, did Julia, did you read him when you were a teenager, too? I read Of Mice and Men, East of Eden and Grapes of Wrath, when I was in college. Hmm. Well, Grapes of Wrath is a big high school assigned book. Usually. Yeah. That's, yeah. I was assigned the Grapes of Wrath. Did I read the Grapes of Wrath? No. <laughs> no. Did you read the Cliff Notes to Grapes of Wrath? Yes. Yes. It is actually the, one of the only times that I completely cheated my way through a book. I thought it was the most boring, horrible thing I had ever read. I made fun of it every day. And then I read it when I was 21, and I felt like a total asshat because I thought it was the best thing I had ever read in my life. And I was on a road trip. I read it on a road trip through Oklahoma, um, which was incredible. And I'm so angry at my... 14 year old self I, I don't think you know ugh, I was I an idiot I don't think John Steinbeck is really made to be read when you're 14 15 years old I mean Grapes of Wrath East of Eden all those books are also so steeped in the literature of other literature mm-hmm. that it's meant to be read when you're older I, I reread Grapes of Wrath a couple years ago maybe oh god when I say a couple now I mean like 10 um, and I was I was much more uh, engaged by it than I had been when I was a kid. And in the Bay Area and in, in California in general, um, when you're growing up as Ryder and I both, where Ryder and I both live, you know, John Steinbeck, you, it's, you're taught that and uh, the history of the missions exactly. and Father Unifero <laughs> Sarah. Uh, like, that's, that's everything. It, I know more this about... I, I, I can tell you all about me. San Juan Capistrano. I can tell you all about San Juan Capistrano. <laughs> I, I had a conversation... <laughs> Like, I don't even know who or what I that know. is. It's I a California history thing. It's a California they thing. They make yeah. you in California public schools, basically, like every grade. I swear, I did it every year. <laughs> yes. You have to pick a mission and do a, like a yes. report on it. And so I did a yes. report on the, Swa- the San Juan Capistrano mission. But then we like went and spent the night at the Sonoma mission. Like you always, right. it's always yes, California history too. bullshit that the rest yes. of the world does not care about at all. And it's also <laughs> the worst history ever, by the way, because it's all these Catholics who basically just 
enslaved all the Native Americans killed Indians. and killed them. <laughs> so it's like, why are we so excited and praising all these people? Well, it's because they're the only history we have. It's like, we right. have these old buildings. They're the only old buildings they can take us to as public schools on field trips. And I didn't know that people didn't know about the history of the missions and the greatness of Father Yanipro <laughs> Sarah until, until I was like 30 and was talking to someone. I, it might have been talking to Wendy and I was like, oh, you know, you remember when you learned about Father Yanipro Sarah and then 10 years later you realize, oh, they were killing the Indians. She's like, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. And I had to go through the whole thing of, you don't know all about the missions? Of course not. It's stupid. It's, it's, the, it's the memory of a horrible thing that we did. I have this extremely distinct memory of being with you and Wendy in Vermont. Uh-huh. And we were walking around somewhere. And you both stopped. And you were staring at a train station. Like a small town, regular train station. <laughs> and... I was like, what are you guys even looking at? And one of you said, we don't have old things in California. (laughs) It's so true. It's so true. All right. Can I just, uh, wait, can I note something hilarious as we exit? So, Ryder, at the very age where all these little teenage girls were writing your name in their books, you were also writing your own name in in your your books. Hey, Ryder, did you write a phone number inside Ryder the Grapes of that we can call? Ryder <laughs> no, I was just saying this book is property of Ryder Strong. Don't people do that? <laughs> a lot of people write their names in their own books, don't But here's, here's what I don't understand, Ryder. When you opened it up, you were surprised to find out that it was your book. Yeah, because... <laughs> just, <laughs> yeah, well, I can't up? believe I kept it this long. I thought... I thought I thought there was no way I still had the same copy of Grapes of Wrath that I did from when I was a teenager, and it clearly is the same copy because I signed it with my teenage signature. And I wrote, I have no idea why I wrote that. <laughs> Dear writer, all best wishes, writer. <laughs> because that's Thanks what 14-year-olds do. That's proof that you read it really young. Dear writer, I'm your number one fan. All best wishes, writer. <laughs> RS plus RS equals... RS. RS. (laughs) All right, stick around for when we uh, delve into The Fault in Our Stars by John Curry. Welcome back, everybody, to Literary Disco, the Fault in Our Stars episode. Um, Now, if you're listening to this, there's a... 20% 20% chance you're one of our regular listeners and an 80% chance that you're a rabid fan of someone named John Green <laughs> who wrote this book. Now, let me tell you guys, I'll tell Ryder and Todd because you guys obviously uh, know less than these rabid fans. John Green is a, he's an interesting guy by my estimation. He not only is an author of YA literature, um, Other books of his include Looking for Alaska and uh, An Abundance of Catherines, a very clever title. I'm sure we're going to get back to that sort of cleverness soon. Um, And The Fault in Our Stars, which is his most recent book. But he also does uh, these video weblogs. I I can't bring myself to call them vlogs, but that's what they're called. Um, Vlog sounds (laughs) like some sort of goth subculture. Yeah, I'm a vlog. 
You know, I just I listen to the music, but I don't I don't like to wear the pancake makeup. Well, so he does these uh, vlogs that originally started as just he and his brother sending videos to each other, and then they got very popular somehow, and then the whole community grew up around this, these guys and their vlogs and these books, and they are called the Nerd Fighters. Oh, okay, I was wondering what that is. So it's a major online community. That's what you need to know. Um, now, if you've never heard of John Green and don't know what we're talking about, what you need to know is that this guy is so popular. I would say... In its own world, he's more popular than Suzanne Collins, and at this moment in time, is more popular than like J.K. Rowling. Really? He is so fucking popular. Wow. Uh, yeah. So huh. for this podcast, we have gotten um, so many requests to talk about this book. And at my job at the Mark Twain House, this is the person. When adults are like, who should we have at the Mark Twain house? They say J.K. Rowling. When we ask a 13-year-old who they want to come to the Mark Twain house, they want John oh, cool. Green. Good for him. So, wow. um, so this guy, so context, extreme popularity is in our hands, mm. you guys. All right. So the book. All right. Big setup. Sorry. So this book, um, it's not giving anything away to say it's about um, kids with cancer, teens with cancer who fall in love and... There's teens with cancer in it, so it's very sad. I, um, I kind of feel like we're just going to have to embrace that this is a spoiler episode. So, like, yeah, I don't think anybody okay, should everyone. listen to this episode because we're not going to hold back very long what happens. Yeah, and I, I, you gotta you got to figure it's like telling people that Voldemort uh, killed Harry Potter's parents. Right. <laughs> you know? I just think, yeah, <laughs> I mean, so if you really don't want to know what happens in this book, don't listen to this episode. I think we're just yeah. going to have to embrace that we're going to be talking the whole thing. about Yeah. yeah. Stop the podcast, go read the book, it'll take you about four hours, and then come right. back and listen. Right. Alright, so, spoiled, pause, pause, pause. Okay, so what happens is... Everybody dies of cancer! If you have cancer, you're gonna die in this book! No, that's not true. That's not true. Uh, not true. So, it's told from the point of view of a teenage girl um, named... Oh my god, I'm blanking out on her name. Hazel Grace. 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 And uh, she falls in love with someone named Augustus. Uh, in my mind, his name is Augustus Gloop, but I know that's not right. So Hazel Grace, Augustus. Um, Hazel Grace appears sicker. Augustus is secretly sicker. He dies. Uh, they have a third friend named Isaac, who's my favorite. I'm sure we'll get back to him. And that is pretty much it. It's very, for a YA book, it's very philosophical. There's a lot of time spent thinking about the nature of illness and death and family and all that stuff. And this book is, it's a big one. So what did you guys think? Well, I thought a couple things. I thought an entire podcast worth of things. The first thing is this. I get why it's huge with 15 and 16-year-old girls. I absolutely get that. It has everything in it. That a 15 or 16 year old girl, and and probably 15, 16 year old boys that aren't you know obsessed with being assholes, which is what you're obsessed with being when you're 15 and 16 as a boy in, in most cases. Um, it has everything you could ask for. It has humor. It has romance. Uh, it has well, it has um, really high stakes too, which I think teenagers really love. high stakes. You know, the sort mm -hmm. of life or death stakes are right in the beginning. Right. It's like right. everything is hugely important. Yeah. As for so for young adult readers, I get it. I get its popularity. I get why people are so fervent for it. For adult readers, for someone over 21 or over 25, I read this book and I think, if you don't know what's going to happen in the first 20 pages of this book, 
you're a horrible, horrible reader. Um, because it's it's so abundantly clear mm-hmm. to an adult reader that it, it's hard, it was hard for me to be as emotionally invested in the, the sad demise of Augustus at the end because I knew immediately he was going to die because he was, to me, the manic pixie cancer boy. And, so true. I love it. And so I I saw what was going to happen to him, and, and I got yeah. it. So I think... I think it's a great YA novel. I think it is the perfect YA novel. I think for an adult novel, it really falls short, which opens up this whole question. People were talking about this on our Facebook um, about, you know, adults reading YA. And there was someone on our Twitter who asked us, you know, why would adults read YA? And for a book like this, I have a hard time understanding why you would read this if you wanted to know, if you wanted a book about, a sad book about people dying of cancer instead of reading... The Year of Magical Thinking by Joan Didion or something, um, when you already know the answer to the questions, and that is that people with cancer die, um, most of them. Well, I, I'm prepared to rebut. You And, and I, should, <laughs> I should note that I, I, I found it entertaining. I was never bored. Um, and I think if I were 16 years old, this would be my favorite book. Mm-hmm. I think I would read this, and it would speak to me at a really high level. And so that's why I'm sort of torn on it, because I... The popularity of it has superseded the YA culture, and, and so then to me, it's just mm-hmm. a book. It's just a novel, like any other novel. And as an adult novel, a novel you'd read as a forty-two-year-old male who has had too many people he loves die of cancer. Um, doesn't hold up. It doesn't hold up for me in that way. Yeah, you know. I, do you agree, Ryan? Yeah, I would completely agree. I mean, I think that it's a. It is. Look, I mean, in the YA world, which I don't know very well, but. From my experience, I mean, when, when I think of YA books of the last couple of years, I think of Twilight, uh, I guess Harry Potter sort of became YA, but I would much rather a book like this get written for kids, and even for adults to be reading, if they're going to be reading YA books, I'd much rather people be reading books about real things and real human life, and, and books that, like you were saying, Julia, strive for a philosophical and um, literate approach to their subject matter and that's i definitely think i love this book for that reason i love this book for the attempt to you know um i mean to me this book it's not so much a cancer i mean that's obviously plot wise it's a cancer book but in terms of what it has to say it's a love letter to literature and it's really about the power of literature which i thought was fantastic i loved that like I, i love that hazel can quote poems off the top of her head i love that she reads as much as she does and and is able to and 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 there's an urgency about literature and the power of literature throughout this book how much we need poetry we need eulogies we need people to make good speeches to write well we need books to have endings that are good like there's so much that this book says about literature that I love. Yeah. And I love the idea, oh, there's the Shakespeare thing, too, where they talk about this quote yeah. from Shakespeare and how that line has lasted longer than who Shakespeare was writing yeah. about or or the memory of or the knowledge of who Shakespeare was writing about. And I just think that all of that stuff is has been... For me, my, I, my understanding is that a lot of YA literature is action-based or mythological or, you know, it's, it's just... So to have a book that is this intelligent or, you know, trying to be this intelligent or about intelligent subjects uh, and, and a literature book that's self-consciously about literature, I would so much rather have a million of those YA books than Twilight mm-hmm. books. So that is all. Then I do think the book fails uh, and I think it falls short in a lot of ways. But 
I do want to say that I appreciate that so much, and I appreciate... Like, I would much rather hang out with a 16-year-old who loves this book than the 16-year-old who loves Twilight, if that makes sense. <laughs> totally. That's such a good one. Yes. Well, I just want to add, to like, one thing I love plot-wise about exactly what you're saying, Ryder, that really struck me was that these kids equally love this pretentious cancer book that they're reading <laughs> and um, a novelized series of a video game. And I and think they're reading novelizing both. anything that's another property is the height of literature, I should mm-hmm. note. Hang on there, burn notice. Um, <laughs> but I, I think that's very real and I think it is very true to the teenage experience. Yes. It's true to my teenage experience. It's true to us doing this friggin' podcast. Yeah. Like I've, and I, I really felt Oh, this is I've, this is the second time I've read this, um, and it's really struck me this time that um, how embedded that is is the breadth of their intellectualism and the bridge they're making from you know childhood to adulthood and how they're allowing themselves the space to be pretentious asshats, um, which is one problem and (laughs) on the other hand um reading and playing video games in a way that i just felt was very honest all those things i think are empowering for young people all those things inspire Mm -hmm. young people to love literature which i think is absolutely fantastic and so i look at this book and i the problems that i have with it as an adult reader are somewhat simple which is that I have spent a lot of time with with teenagers, uh, both teaching them um, and just being around them in general. And if I ever met a teen that was this lucid and (laughs) able to to speak about uh, philosophy and things like that, uh, you know, it would be great. It was sort of the Dawson's Creekization of (laughs) dialogue. Here was my experience of reading the book. First of all, I've read it before, so I know what's going to happen. Second of all, I'm like, I'm going to talk, talk about, about the this. first time you read it then. Well, no, 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 no. This is a point. It very second familiar all, to me. <laughs> second of all, Todd and Ryder, I was like, I'm going to talk about this with Todd and Ryder, and I know they're going to hate it. So I'm ready to, like, think about this. I didn't hate the book. Okay, well, that's how I go into everything. <laughs> anyway, um, so I, I was seeing all of the things that you're talking about, and I agree with you. They're way too precocious. There's, like, weird things. Oh, I'm going to throw down something huge. I do not really like first person in these kind of books because it removes, like, a huge level of suspense. It I don't like the same thing in The Hunger Games. It's like, you know Hazel isn't going to die. You know Katniss isn't going to die because they're writing the fucking book. So all of that I don't like. So I'm, like, seeing all these things pop up. I am not going to lie to you guys. I <laughs> sobbed hysterically for a straight hundred pages, which I can't even tell you when that has happened. And I did it the first time I read it too. Like it absolutely resonated with me. And it wasn't the fact that this kid died. It was other characters and relationships. It wasn't the center of this romance. It was this whole side plot line of the mother, uh, the mom not getting to be a mom anymore. That just hit me hard. Right. The plot line. I thought that was well done. I thought that was yeah, really good. Actually, the plot line of the kid who has eye cancer, so his eyes are removed, and he, you know the depiction of these two boys and their like video game playing based relationships. I also just found really moving. So it's like all this stuff in there. My brain was saying this book isn't great, but I'll be fucking damned if I didn't crumble under its 
the, what it was trying to do. And I, you know what? That's not even fair to say. If it's trying to make me think and feel about the end of life for teenagers, then it's absolutely succeeded. I am surprised that you guys didn't feel any emotional response oh, because I, I, I was saddened by that... it. I, it's not like I read it and was like, oh, th- this fucking kid deserves to die um, or that these people aren't feeling things. And I never yeah. got misty, but it certainly made me sad. It certainly made me think about stuff. Um, you know, all that happened. But like when I read Ron Curry Jr.'s Flimsy Little Plastic Miracles, there's all the stuff about um, the father dying in, in that um, way, of cancer. That was right. that was more profound to me than this was because it was it was an experience that was like what I had experienced. But that's a whole different category. I mean. So to to say you got emotional over something that was so close to your experience, I feel like is different. That's different than what I'm talking about. I haven't. I have. But when you when you cry in a book or when you cry in a movie, it's because you are empathizing with that character. You are putting yourself mm-hmm. in. So when I cried reading The English Patient, um, or when I saw the movie The English Patient, for instance, it's because I imagine what it would be like to leave. This, the love of my life to die alone in a cave. Um, right. You know, and so when I'm reading this book, yeah, it's absolutely sad, and I feel sad that Hazel's going to die. Um, and I, I felt sad that Augustus had died. But it, it didn't... I knew it was going to happen, so therefore the monster jumping out didn't scare me, you know? And I think... But it's not a monster jumping out. Like, I think that's... I, this is a But it should be a, a monster jumping with... out, though. I mean, that's... Why? Because that's story structure. It, it, this is a difference between melodrama and drama, right? Like, when you're talking about sentimentality and melodrama, what are we talking about? You're talking about an important issue with a capital I that is milked for its important issueness and not believable in a real-life way. This book, I never believed it. I never believed that these people actually existed. I never believed that they actually went to Amsterdam. Did you believe any of that? I could sort of like fantasize about it in this weird, like abstract way and say like, oh, it's cancer, it's sad. I never Mm. believed these are real people. The whole time I was aware, I'm reading a book by a guy who writing about a girl. It was all poorly written. Like that's the problem. Hallmark cards make great poetic sentiments. That doesn't make them good poetry. And a really smart, well-read character doesn't make a smart, book either like this book doesn't actually say that much more than the the sayings that are all over gus's house like there's nothing that this book offers about cancer that isn't plastered on every pillow in his house and that it's like trying to be something more but it actually doesn't accomplish that it just ends see, up that's, being no that's why, I, I totally disagree that's why i think I really that you believe that you believe that every time he sees her and he goes hazel grace and calls her by her phone no. you believe that all the cigarette that, thing like you no. believe all the character quirks with a capital q that that's are all stupid it's stupid that's the book i agree with that's you that's the whole book that's it's full of no, that kind isn't. of stupidity. You know, if you're young okay, enough, me... you're willing to overlook it because you think that it's important. Right. But it's bad writing. I didn't believe a single one of these characters, except maybe the mom. I believed her. That uh-huh. was an interesting character. I didn't believe that Peter Van Houten was a real person, that he ever no. could exist. No, that was so, so that, there, was These Willy are cornerstones of good writing, though. I mean, that's Peter Van Houten was Willy Wonka. But Willy Wonka is Willy Wonka. existing in a comedy space. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an intentional morality tale. You never believe believe it from the moment it starts. Roald Dahl is a master at, at letting you know that he's in on it. This is this is very clearly trying to be a first person serious book that, that is that we're supposed to believe. And and the reason I say that is because it spends so much energy distancing itself from bad cancer books. That's like the entire thrust of this book is we're not like those other bad what 
bad cancer books are they talking about? These are straw men. Uh, Lurleen McDaniel. But these are straw men. No, this know, is a this straw is... man that John yeah. Green sets up to make his book more important. And it works. It manipulates you into thinking that this book is better than it actually is. Pa- pause one moment, writer, to, to wipe the froth from your mic. <laughs> <laughs> No, look, I wanted this I wanted this book to be more. I wanted it to be the the cancer book to end all cancer books. I wanted it to, to be better than the But look, how is it different than the cancer books it's purportedly different from? It's saying it is, but you have uh, a Romeo and Juliet doomed love affair. There's a make a wish trip. There's a noble emotional speeches. There's sentiments expressed from beyond the grave. I mean, there's all this pre-death closure. It's like the ultimate cheesy cancer book, actually. It just does all this ironizing and, like, distancing, and the characters are constantly like, well, we're so much better than those other cancer books. But it's just a bad cancer book. I mean, because the writing itself isn't better. It's like, what's the difference between an after-school special and train spotting? An after-school special is bad because the acting is bad, and it's not because it's about drugs. It's not because it's about an important issue. An after-school special is bad because the filmmaking and the acting and the dialogue is horrible around the important issue. But Trainspotting is really good acting, really good filmmaking. So it it still has the same message. Drugs are bad. Don't do them, right? But the after-school special is poorly done. And this is, I felt the same way. It's like for all he's trying to do something better, he doesn't pull it off. It's just not, it just still ends up being... Cancer sucks, and but people die, it, and we feel bad it, for them. And does he not pull it off to a 15-year-old, or does he not pull it off for everyone? I don't make distinctions between YA books and regular literature. I agree. So for me, it's, if you yeah. don't pull it off, you don't pull it off. Because, like, I mean, that book that we... The other YA book that we've read on this, this podcast, I loved. Um, when You Reach Me by uh, Rebecca Stead. I loved that book, and I think it's just a well-written book. And I think, like, Roald Dahl is a good example of... Yes, his book is about kids. It's for kids, in a way... But it's just well-written, and the characters are fully fleshed. Or if it's... There's so much um, nuance and uh, awareness going into those books that even if it's fake or two-dimensional, it, it feels intentional, and it's well done. It's to a good effect. Whereas this book just fell short for me. I never believed any well, of it. Well, I, I will concede big time that I think the way they talk is ridiculous. I It's hard to get past. But I don't know if... I remember being pretentious. I remember being 15 or 16 and thinking I was the smartest person in the world and picking cute nicknames and all that stuff. And I don't think this reflects reality, but I don't think it's as far off as we think either. And I think very strongly that all, during the first like 100 pages or so, all the setup, and there's so much more of that really... Um, affected affected language and then as as they get sicker um as as john green really starts writing about what he clearly really wants to write about it does really start to fall away and normal teenage speech comes through i mean i'm probably the only one in the universe but i'm obsessed with this blind kid i think he is so realistically okay written. but let me He's give you a really clever. basic example do you believe that a blind video game exists like yes the one that, they play? that exists that happens yeah You've, you've seen this game? Or you know I'm about sure a game think? like this? It must exist. I've never heard of a voice recognition game where you can run around and it's a voice recognition version of a game that somebody else has already played? I, uh, I didn't believe in the existence of that game. I Just on a basic well, level, I, I didn't believe that an interaction worked like that. I didn't believe that Are these, you Googling, Todd? No, but you know what I did Google? You bought into that? You guys both thought that that... That, that seemed perfectly plausible to me, that there's a, a voice interaction Yeah, game. all kinds of things are made for yeah. people with handicaps. The, the blind kid was, was fascinating to me for a couple of reasons, because it got me thinking about 
what it would be like to know you're about to lose your eyesight. Um, and then it, it opened up a giant question for me that I have not yet Googled the answer to, which is, how do blind people go to sleep? Do they just decide that now I'm going to go to sleep? <laughs> yes. I don't know the answer to this. You just lie down and you go to sleep. Your sleep yeah, is a brain state. It's not about your eyes being closed. People sleep with their eyes open. Some people always sleep with their eyes open. Those people are called zombies. <laughs> oh, um, it happens. <laughs> like, people get older, their eyes, they don't close all the way. It totally happens. But it's, so, Okay, there are huh. voice recognition video games. They're made by a company called Phonics. Um, you can play them on PC. You can play them on Xbox 360. Right. Okay, anyway. Okay, then what about the genies that whisk them off to Amsterdam? Did you believe that that well, whole the make a wish Foundation, thing? yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's all real. Okay. That's also real. You're choosing no, the no, most No, no, I'm real not thing. saying they're not real. I'm saying the representation <laughs> didn't feel real to me. It felt convenient. No, it was slight. It was thin and and it was yes. ridiculous. And that these were like I didn't believe that they could be playing a video game and then two weeks later he loses his eyesight and then they can play a blind version of that same video game where they save hostages but but saving. Like the plot dynamics were so thin and poorly structured to be obvious and heavy handed about the metaphorical significance of these things that that's bad writing. And the same way with like, oh, I'll get the genies to whisk us off to Amsterdam to meet this famous author. I didn't believe that that could ever happen. I believe that Make-A-Wish exists, of course. But do I believe that they could, within three days, send two kids, one of whom is not dying of cancer, off to Am No, like none of that. And it's like, well, that's the kind of legwork of realism that I require of a book that wants me to be emotionally invested in death by cancer. Like, if you're going to write a book about the emotional realism of being 16 and you want me to be drawn into it, you got to convince me. And it didn't convince me. None of it felt believable. And I think, you know, when you look at the scaffolding around the plot, which is just this very stuff, when when you start seeing the unbelievability of it, that makes the, the more overt, believable things, which is kids dying of cancer, which yes. happens on a daily basis, it makes mm -hmm. it sentimental. That's the problem, is because it lacks that structure of reality around it. And it's not, it's not about good writing or bad writing here, necessarily. It's, I think, when you are obviously writing to young people, and I think there is a difference. There absolutely is a difference in what young people will accept and what adults will accept. Um, you know, I think your average 14-year-old does not care about whether or not a video game like that exists or how quickly a blind person could go from being sighted to being blind to playing video games for the blind without also having to go through all the tremendous amounts of emotional therapy they'd have to go through um, to accept being blind. I think a 15-year-old doesn't care about that detail. I think they don't care about the plausibility of the genie. They just want these people to go on this adventure. And so as, as mm -hmm. implausible as those things are, you know, if they if they were in another book, that's what a sixteen year old is going to skip over anyway. The the all that important stuff. That's that's why when when we were talking earlier in the episode about having read Steinbeck as our YA fiction when we were younger, it I think that primed me for something different as an adult reading YA. So when I was a kid, mm. I read Steinbeck, I read Hemingway, I read. Stephen King. Stephen King was really my YA fiction. I read that constantly, mm -hmm. and then adult crime fiction. I didn't. I didn't really read any Judy Bloom type stuff. You know, after I was ten, or the the young adult fiction of its time. Why? Can I just interject here? Because we may. talked about this with Erica. Judy Bloom type stuff and Roald Dahl and all that. That's middle grade. Right. That's younger. That's a solid four or five years younger, which in teen land is forever huge. Right. 
Um, so those, these aren't in the same category at all. Okay. This is this would be in the same category as The Outsiders. Um, I would argue that this is in the same category as Catcher in the Rye, which is reflects a lot of the reasons that people don't like that when they go back to it. You know, those kind of books that 16-year-olds who aren't necessarily reading, like even some Stephen King, yeah, I think is written on the same level or has the same narrative but, devices. You know, I think a good comparison to Catcher in the Rye in terms of both popularity as well, and, and, and this book is, I think, comparable to this, to Fault in Our Stars currently, is, is Perks of Being a Wallflower by Stephen Chbosky, yeah. which came out in 98 or 99 and was just a movie, obviously, this year. But it was, at the time, the biggest YA book around, and, and it's parallels to Catcher in the Rye and uh, and you know, to popular culture, all that stuff is it's really deeply in there, and it's written. The book is written as as uh, journal entries. Um, you know, is that that book, and I think Catcher in the Rye deal with reality in in more firm ways. Yeah, can we talk about um, my pet peeve of the book? This Dutch writer. Uh, yes, we can at length. <laughs> so there is a Dutch writer who writes a book. That's clearly this book. <laughs> so there's a book within a book thing happening. And then they go to Amsterdam, which for me, I was like, okay, but it was fine. And it seems like Amsterdam is just beautiful. I've never been. Oh, it's gorgeous. And, beautiful city. Um, Great so weed. I thought, I, Great weed. I just, let's point, I just want to point, I think the writing there was subtle and good, the description of the city. And then they basically try to fulfill this fantasy and meet this writer and blah, blah, blah. You guys have all read the book. You know what happens. But then (laughs) he turns out to be drunk. Okay. And then they go back to the United States and he shows up. And I, that was, I did not like that. I did not like that he. That's the kind of believability that is just riddled throughout yeah. this whole book. There's no believability. I mean, you knew he was going to show up, and and when he showed up, that's at the point in the book when he shows back up for Augustus's funeral. I was like, oh, give me a fucking break. Um, and that that was my point at which I could not be emotional, also because it was so unbelievable at that point. Yeah, but you know, also like the 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 the, the way the book really let me down was in the moments that are supposed to be. The, the 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 painful real moments like dealing with actual sickness i didn't i mm-hmm. didn't believe those either and that that what really hurt me because i felt like you can have a story narrated by a 17 year old girl or 16 year old girl and it can it, you know i can maybe forgive that this is sort of a fantasy version of how they would talk or how she feels she talks with her boyfriend or whatever or the way that they treat adults i can maybe buy all that but the real opportunity to show realism was in the sort of, you know, awfulness of facing death. And even those scenes felt, uh, I felt like I'd seen them in movies or on an episode of Dawson's Creek, which you mentioned before. <laughs> like, everything felt very romantic. And and I, I, you know, I just didn't, I just, those were the moments when I wanted to be really in it. Like, I wanted her to be actually disgusted by his body and disgusted by her own body at times and I didn't feel like that really came through enough for me to to buy into the emotions of the It's book. interesting that you say that because so I put out on Twitter why uh, asking why people like this mm-hmm. book because I knew we were going to have this conversation I really want to hear from the people who love it and I think a lot of them feel that it is represented fairly I mean there are a lot of terrible way worse cancer books out there that are so much more romantic and Mm -hmm. stupid. Mm -hmm. But, um, so like I would say, for example, uh, 
probably for me the strongest or at least closest to what we want from this book scene is um, she goes to meet him at a gas station in the middle of the night and he's vomiting on himself and he has an infected tube coming out of his stomach. And so that's, you know, that's something you're not going to find in a well-lit deathbed teary confession and then they sigh and they drop their hand you know so there are moments when you're dealing with someone's actual illness when you're dealing with someone that has cancer in front of you it is it is the strangeness of that experience or any death any kind of tragedy it's always it feels i mean well we talked about this last week what i loved about joanne beard's essay was the way that she was able to take a scene that we all can imagine, right? A shooter, a, a shooting, a tragedy in your life. And she made it feel so strange and new, even though we kind of already knew what was going to happen or what would inevitably happen because we're reading an essay about it. But it felt so strange. And, and this book didn't have any of that. Like, And I think that that's the goal of a fiction mm. writer, right? To take the scenes that we know are going to happen. We're going to have a deathbed confession. You know, we're going to have a cleaning up urine scene, whatever, but make it feel mm -hmm. fresh for me. Make it feel uncomfortable for me to read. If you're going to write, if you're going to make a, write a book that's, so, you know, trying to be different from all those cheesy cancer books, then you got to do it. You got to actually pull it off. But so let me go back then, though, to the original question, which is we are influenced by everything we've already read and seen. A 15 or a 16 year old who reads this is not. So to mm -hmm. them, this is their fresh and new. This is but then should we be writing books and, with that yeah. in mind? Or should we be writing books that are just good books that a, y, a young person could also engage with in? Because, you know, but do you know what I mean? Like, we, why should we be condescending yeah. to an audience yeah. and saying, well, we don't, we don't need to worry about believability or innovation as much because I'm writing for a teenager. Therefore, it doesn't, I think that's a really horrible way to approach writing. And I think that that's part of the reason why I, I resist this book is because I feel like, yes, I want to applaud him for taking on a big issue and, and trying to get, you know, kids to read and, and all this, like I said before, all the love literature to literature stuff I love, but you got to actually write good literature in order to, to be good literature. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me, but let me flip this for you, okay? So I, I agree inherently with what you're saying, but right before this, I was at a book club that I was leading uh, for work about Walden, and we were talking about, um, everyone there was like, average age was like 85. Uh, <laughs> average age, they've been dead was, for five years. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I was just in a uh, funeral home, just <laughs> talking reading, about Walden talking about With Thoreau yeah. himself, um, as happened. Which, <clears throat> and now I love Walden. And, um, so all these people are like, oh, the counterculture. And it's like, people need to read this. This book is important, which I totally agree with. I love it. It makes me very emotional. And all these people were talking about times that they'd given it away or taught it in a class. And to go back to our Grapes of Wrath mention, so I put to them, I was like, well, did your students read it? Or did they check out? immediately and not read it. And so the question is like for a book to have impact or an idea to have impact, it has to be read. It has to be readable. And I think that is a weird gap that mm. YA is starting to fill of get these, the kids who read this book are listening to our podcast. They are reading, they're engaging with reading. I read Twilight. Those kids are going on to Fifty Shades of Grey. I, it's not. <laughs> Those it's kids are giving blowjobs on the street for twenty bucks a pop. It's not a question. And as we look at like the decline of reading high quality stuff, which I don't know if there is one, but 
you know, it's a, a question. To have this gateway drug, which is plot and emotion, I think is... We can't ignore that kids are responding to this. Like, John Green did not... He's not an evil guy. I've watched the vlogs. Like, he's a nice guy who's like, holy shit, I guess my audience is teens. You know, that's what it seems like his life became. And then he said, okay, I'm going to I'm gonna give them the best story I can write. And obviously, he has, like, emotional ambitions here. Obviously, he loves science. Like, going back to last week, there's all this stuff about math and infinity that I mm-hmm. enjoyed. Um, and I think that he's just accepted that this is what what his readers want to read and he's giving them what they want, but also challenging them. I I do think this is emotionally challenging for a teen, but all of that only answers Todd's question and not the like, is this for everybody question? And wait, before you rebut, I want to do my funny thing that I've been (laughs) waiting to. So, um, so I went to Barnes and Noble to get this. By the way, I was at Barnes and Noble to buy this book. He has his own fucking table. I I, I did not realize how huge this guy is. He's crazy huge. Yeah. All right, so I went to a shelf and I I avoided the John Green table and I got it off the regular shelf. And there's like four shelves of YA, and um, so the the title of the Fault in Our Stars, even the title is ambitious. It's about fate and do we blame ourselves or do we blame whatever. Um, and it's from Julius Caesar. It's a quote from Julius Caesar. Now, so I'm thinking about the title. I'm holding this book. And then I, like, look up at the other titles. And, guys, if you want to write a book with a one-word title, you better do it now because this is the YA <laughs> shelf. Are you ready? Yes. <clears throat> These are all different books. Okay. Poison, Slated, Furious, Stung, Unholy, <laughs> Unraveling, Unbreakable, Inheritance, Sold, Monster, Ripple, Crank, Burned, Crack. Glass, impulse, match, defriended, uh, blaze, defriended. game, yep, <laughs> game, thumped, rotten, gorgeous, mojo, coda, trinkets, spoiled, twisted, spec, double, crosses, doomed, taken, pulse, sever, fever, lucid, beauty, style, wish, lies, fear, infamous, exile, Are you me? divergent, insurgent. Oh my god! I'm not done. Hunger, plague, delusion, imposter, wake, lullaby, asunder, hidden, thirst, infatuate, illuminate, legend, prodigy. Domination, mercy, seizure, code, doomed, and revived. Oh my God! Are these are some of these from a, a series like where they're intentionally? Some of them are, word? but okay. I, there's no way you can't notice it. Like, oh my God! Go, isn't that crazy? Well, okay. So let's just say, what is what do we think that that means? Well, I know exactly what it means. So okay. you're <laughs> going to submit your YA novel, and it's called, you know. Um, the fault in our the stars. fault in our stars, okay. and marketing right. is going to say we're going to call it seizure. And go, and they're you know you're going to say fine, call it seizure until you're until you're John Green and you're selling a million copies, if or if you don't have it in your contract, and also a lot of a lot of YA comes from what are what are called um, book packagers, so yeah, and they just come up they they have buzzwords and they say oh defriended let's call something defriended and find a book that we can use defriended as so that's part of it is that it, it's just, just marketing, marketing. Driven. yeah. You know, what is literary fiction other than pretentious people talking about their emotions? And, you know, a great deal of literary fiction is about illness or about death or about, you know, whatever, you know, that has to do with just one person dealing with their shit um, that's largely plotless. I think a lot of literary fiction is like that. So, you know, to, to your point, Julia, that this is actually a better primer for young readers to start reading whatever, you know, 
Alice Monroe or something. I, I think is is actually true. I mean, I, I think you're less <laughs> actually likely, true. Tackle. You're less likely to go from. <laughs> it's actually smart. Your, your point was nearly <laughs> valid, but not quite. That it's an easier jump to go from reading this to reading the corrections. You know, um, some would argue that Romeo and Juliet is the original YA. You know what I mean? Romeo and Juliet is very similar in a lot of ways. It makes a lot of the same points, obviously. Mm-hmm. I mean, everything is pulled from there. But I, totally dis- I mean, I disagree, because I think Romeo and Juliet is very self-consciously undermined by within the text. Like, I think Shakespeare clearly intended their love to be a pathetic fallacy. Okay. I did, I, and All I think right. it's been misinterpreted... For hundreds of years. You know what? So, by everyone. Yes, I think a popular culture interpretation of Romeo and Juliet, I think, is completely wrong. But whatever. I mean, that, that, I think that, so, that, that on, makes writer, that great. No, you're actually, correct. writer is correct. Writer if is correct. If you're correct, writer, why does the rest of the world disagree with you? Because they don't, they've never read it. They have never read All it. Right. When was the last time you talked to somebody who actually read Romeo and Juliet outside of a high school class where their teacher was telling them, well, back then, 13-year-olds got married. That's just... Not true. Like, you know, life expectancy was 30, so this is a real love story. No, it was, it's a mocking, it's, well, whatever. Well, I won't get into Romeo and Juliet, but I do think... Next that, week, literary disco. I think that the popular <laughs> interpretation of Romeo and Juliet misses what Shakespeare was actually saying. I mean... Strong, thou art a villain. I think, well, I, I actually agree with you. I, I think this is worth talking about because... Oh, you actually agree with me. Yeah, I actually agree with you. That's actually smart. Um, because... <laughs> <laughs> Romeo and Juliet isn't actually about their romance. It's about violence between families. Yes. yes. So yes. that's and the reputation. crux of the story. Yes. It's not yes. that their love is so transcendent. And for all of you who are going to go read Romeo and Juliet, which you should do, um, Romeo, yes, is an idiot. Juliet yeah. is smart. Juliet is awesome. She is really intelligent. She is patient. She is, she is the main character in a way. So it, when you go back, just notice that Romeo is the idiot. Well, uh, young men, by and large, as we've noted earlier, are the dumbest human beings on earth. And having been a young man, I, I can speak to this with some great authority. So, Ryder, you're in the middle of a rant, and I interrupted you. So, yeah. no, I don't know if I was. <laughs> I mean, I, I have a hard time with this because I don't know. I really don't know how much because I feel like this argument has been given every. Every five years, it seems like, oh, literature's dead, books are dead, and then a book comes along, it gets people reading, or is really popular, and everyone agrees, well, it's probably pretty crappily written, but <laughs> it's so good that people are reading again. And it's it's hard to argue with that. Like, I totally think, like, yeah, as many people, like, you know, if everybody, if every teenage girl in America was reading Twilight, at least they were reading something, and I totally have to say, like, yeah, I would rather more people are reading than just watching reality television. Of course. Like, but this I think isn't... It's better to read. This isn't in that this category is, at all. Having read both, like, this isn't even close. I wouldn't... Like, I no. knew we were going to have this conversation and I was upset, like, on behalf of John Green, because <laughs> on behalf of he Stephanie doesn't Meyer. deserve to be put in that category. I think our opinion that it is not that well-written is not a common opinion. I mean, like, there's, there's this gloss of pretentiousness and crap that I agree I hate. But underneath it, there are some really intelligent little phrases, and it's annoying because you can miss them because there's a fucking Dutch man in the back of your minivan. But but things like observations that are touched upon that 
you know, the cancer is also of your body and it's killing you. I agree. You know, that is extreme. That's something that you're not going to find. And I, I don't think it's poorly written. I think it's poorly plotted. Okay. And I think the dialogue sure. is is hard to believe. If the dialogue was being said by other people and, and the, the characters were more rounded, you know, I, I let me backtrack. I think the narrative is better than the dialogue. So I think he hmm. comes to some very big conclusions about the nature of illness and what it is that that you know cancer is a side effect of dying all that stuff i think that's all that's all pretty interesting stuff i think that there's a huge aspirational aspect to this book you know like hazel is kind of the the girl or the teenager that we all wish we knew or could be do you know what mm-hmm. i mean like especially if something tragic like you were going to die at the age of 16 was going to happen to you you'd love to be the person who is this smart is this well read is this able to think clearly about the issues surrounding death and um but i guess i just wish that it had lived up to its own aspirations a little bit more like Mm -hmm. i wish the book because i i like i hear what you guys are saying about like these little insights along the way but i don't think they add up to much i don't know what this book is saying i don't know if this is because there's times when this book has religious references Mm -hmm. that she makes and then there's times when it's all science-based and actually very consciously anti-religious like when she talks about uh human consciousness being made and unmade and they're meaning nothing and i don't know what this book says (laughs) i i feel like this book has like i was saying hallmark card sort of sentiments peppered throughout Mm -hmm. and then along with them it'll have a shakespeare quote or william carlos williams poem <laughs> thrown in but it actually doesn't say that much like, i don't i, I don't believe I don't, any 16 year old girl reads william carlos williams that's my, that's that was I, the most of i, I memorized i memorized that poem when i was 15 like that was one of my favorite poems so it happens but i just didn't like i didn't know what that meant like that poem is means something very specific and the fact that that poem was used as an example of to say what like i walk away from this book and i have all these Feelings like, oh yeah, she felt things deeply and she thought about them deeply, and so did he. But I don't have any. But that's counterpoint. Counterpoint. If you knew what this was meant to say, that would be a hundred times worse. The fact that the fact that the teenager is looking at her own death and has grown grown up in a religious background but also doesn't believe that anything happens when you die that's the most realistic thing about this book that it is a mishmash like the entire idea that these things don't add up to one thing is i think that exactly is what makes people like this book is that it's peppered throughout just like any teenage life is and it's exactly what we ask for from literature that it doesn't and that it raises more questions than it answers or it only raises questions and doesn't answer anything and i do think that this does that but it you know just what I mean? didn't. I just wanted it to be the book that it was hoping to be. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I just felt like it set out to be the cancer book to end all cancer books, the way that Moby Dick is the sea adventure book <laughs> to end all sea adventure books. If only, or whatever. If only it but ended it sea adventure yeah. books. But yeah, but it's, yeah. but it's. But can you imagine if Moby Dick the whole time was talking about those other sea adventure books and how? I mean, that's yeah. what this book is essentially doing, and it's like, well, you then you have to pull it off, dude. Like you can't just half-ass it. I feel like this is one of those books that everybody's gonna love, and then when they're twenty-five. They're going to like, or 35, they're going to read it to their kid and be like, oh, man, this is not as good as I thought it was. Um, it's, it's, it's very emo. Do you yeah. Know? Like, yeah. I don't yeah, even know is. if I know it what is. emo means exactly, I but I feel like it just reeks of emo, which is like these really dramatic, but that's intense what, that's feelings. that's what a 16-year-old wants. I mean, they want to know that their intense feelings, that, they, that someone else feels the same way. I mean... But why should we cater to that? Well, I think they... As writers, I, I think there's a market readers. for it, and 
and there's always been a market for it. And and you also there has to be writing that teens can read. I think you have to also write to the reading level of an audience sometimes too, that some writing is above a reading audience. So you can't expect someone who's 12 years old to read uh, and appreciate the Grapes of Wrath, and yet we force them to do it, because they're not going to get all the nuance. I I think stripping some of the nuance out is important for the 14-year-old or 15-year-old who's going to read this book, you know, because they Uh, just, they're going to deal with some of those core emotions. I think... See, let me throw something out Why don't we read books by 14-year-olds? Because they aren't very good with sentence construction. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But we don't, like, people don't write books before the age of 20 that are any good. And that's not because, you know, before the age of 20, you don't have big thoughts or feelings. It's because private fantasy, private imagination, make-believe only becomes good when it's tested against reality. And so all of us have private fantasies when we're kids. We all have crazy ideas and stories that are incredibly creative and fun. Being a good writer means taking those, or a good filmmaker or a good artist of any sort, means taking those and testing them against the world and convincing somebody else about the believability of that Mm -hmm. private fantasy. This fails because I don't believe that these people ever exist in any world. I don't believe they talk like this. I don't believe that these things happen. So that's bad writing. That's not about YA, non-YA. That's just bad writing. I don't want to excuse it because a 16-year-old could write like that or think like that. That's be- I don't want to read a book by a 16-year-old. I want to read a book by an adult that's been tested against the reality. Now, that doesn't mean it can't be about crazy things that are unbelievable. You just have to convince me of those. So it can have wizards. It can have witches. It can have crazy crap. But the reason we don't listen to 8-year-olds babbling about you know the elves that live next door is because it doesn't make sense. It doesn't connect. It doesn't test the belief. They're not able to convince me of its believability. He did not convince me of the believability of Hazel. Like, Hazel doesn't exist. Writers? <laughs> got the most rants per episode record. This is right? highest, yeah. I, I will, most rants per, per moment. Oh, I, am, I, am, I am very excited to uh, for this like age of cleverness to be over. Oh, it's not going to end. The internet has made the age uh-huh. of cleverness the, the only way we can express anything to I one another on the internet. I want people to speak Jane Austen English forever. Is that never going to happen? Um, you know, strictly as a book for young adults... I think it's fine. I think any adult is going to have any anyone who's had a lot of people they know suffer and die around them. It, it's just going to feel it's going to feel less plausible. It, every, basically, everything we've said for the last hour, I think, is still true. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, everybody, that was your hot topic debate. You asked us to read it. That's what you got. <laughs> Join us next and time when we, when we talk about a book that uh, hopefully will not make us all want to kill ourselves after reading. Because I think we've only read depressing things for like the last two months, right? Yeah, we should read a comedy next. <laughs> yes, yeah. something funny about death instead. Ha-ha. All right, everybody. We'll see you next time when uh, Ryder will uh, wipe the spit off of his microphone and see if he has an opinion on something. <laughs> episode of Literary Disco. Join us in two weeks when we discuss V.C. Andrews' classic Flowers in the Attic. Like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash literary disco, and follow us on Twitter at literary disco. Thanks for listening.